access to good food, food that's healthy, green, fair, and affordable. I think it's also important to note culturally appropriate really should be a basic human right that is available to all of us, regardless of differences in race and gender and ethnicity in class, you know, all of those things. But the idea of food justice exists because there are all these structural inequities in our food system that impede that access, and they're you know, often tied to those differences. So I see food justice as a lens that we can apply to our efforts to work toward more equitable systems. Food sovereignty refers to the idea that communities hold the power to determine what a just food system looks like. And I think you most often will hear about that in the context of communities that have, you know, been disenfranchised by the food system in the past. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Hey everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Infinite Earth Radio, where each week we interview thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. My co-host, Renice Miller-Travis, is off today on a much-deserved vacation. Our topic today is local food systems, which is a hot topic in a growing number of communities across the country that are concerned with the environment, public health, equity, and community resiliency. It will also be a feature topic at the New Partners for Smart Growth Conference. Our guest today, Laura Gadiris, is the director of the Food and Community Connections Project at Michigan State University's Center for Regional Food Systems. Laura coordinates outreach, engaging national organizations in improving food systems and community environments, linking ground-level efforts and national stakeholders to inform policy and systems change. She is particularly focused on exploring opportunities for local governments to support regional food systems. Laura, welcome and thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Can you briefly summarize for our audience the mission of the Center for Regional Food Systems at Michigan State University? Sure. The mission of our center is to engage the people of our state here, Michigan, but also of the United States and even extending to other parts of the world in applied research, outreach, and education efforts to develop more regionally integrated and sustainable food systems. Great. And so what's the Food and Community Connections Project all about? So that is the main initiative that occupies much of my time. And it's actually a project supported by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, who has long been a supporter of efforts to influence the health and well-being of children in particular, but also their families and communities. And so the foundation obviously does that through a lot of direct investments to projects on the ground, but they also support initiatives like the Food and Community Connections Project, which are really aimed at growing a national movement for healthy people and healthy farms and healthy communities and healthy economies. So through our project, we focus 
on a handful of specific priority areas that we think are essential to that national movement. And in those priority areas, we look for opportunities to engage key national partners. So those could include professional or trade organizations or federal or state agencies or other types of NGOs or other groups. But we look for opportunities to collaborate on research and outreach so that these different entities can better understand and own their roles in creating environments and conditions that make it possible for children and their families and communities to thrive. And a lot of that has to do with the production and and access of what we call good food, so food that's healthy, that's sustainably produced or green, that's fairly produced, and that's affordable. Great. So, you know, I think there's a growing movement of folks who understand kind of the impact that food production has on the environment and certainly on people's health. And there's a lot of reason to support local community food systems. But to what degree do you think that local food systems really can be a significant driver of of economic development at the local level? I think that's a great question. And that's actually something we're talking a lot about at our center these days. If you're trying to convince someone that the answer to that question is, is yes, ideally you want to have some data and some numbers to back it up. And there have certainly been many studies done that attempt to answer questions like, if we consumed more locally produced produce, how much more millions of dollars would that generate for our economy, for our state, or for uh, our county, let's say. And I think those are great questions to ask, but I also think that coming from a center based at an academic institution, we advocate being pretty cautious when throwing numbers around, particularly if you're trying to um, to make the case for investment in a project. So we would say it's like better to under-promise and over-deliver. I talked about movement building. We don't want to shoot the movement in the foot by setting out some grandiose expectations. But I should note that kind of in recognition of these challenges of quantifying economic impacts of local food activities. The USDA has recently supported the development of a fantastic toolkit that was put together by a team of economists from across the country. It's actually led by um, researchers at Colorado State University. The website is up, but the actual toolkit hasn't quite been released, but it's coming out soon. And, and that's aimed at really helping communities better design and, and evaluate studies. I do want to add that if we're thinking of economic development in that broader sense that, you know, also includes improvements in a in sort of a, the community quality of life. I think you can look at an example like Eastern Market in Detroit, one of the oldest, if not the oldest public markets in the country, I think. And you can say, I mean, absolutely, that is an economic driver. It's really the cornerstone and, and the driver of a, a larger urban district. So, You have people coming there to the physical space to buy local groceries, of course, but that's also a draw for people to come in and and shop at other businesses and and dine out and or even to live. So I certainly do think that you can point to examples of food system activities really leading community resurgence, if you will, like that. Yeah, I think if you think in the, like if you look at the big macro picture, right, the food system we have we did not get by accident. It was it was driven by policy and it was designed. And the idea was 
that, you know, starting in the, probably the 1920s, we wanted to move people off of the farm. We wanted to get people out of farming and into industry. And we, we basically replaced people with fossil fuels in the food system. And so, you know, now if you get this dynamic where you have a lot of underemployed people and we have a concern about a shortage of fossil fuels and other natural resources and the environmental impacts of the farming system we've created, I mean, it just seems natural to think that if we can you kind of reverse the equation, if you will, right? You start reverting back to more labor-intensive, higher nutrition, lower chemical-dependent farming policies. And I would just also build on that by saying, you know, especially in my work, we're kind of go- we're going in and trying to make the case for why, like a local government who historically has maybe had no connection, they believe had no connection to the food system. That may be debatable, but um, when you go in to talk to them. I always like to make the point that, you know, food systems exist at all these different scales, local, regional, national, global, and they're all kind of nested within one another. And so when we, you know, a lot of times we use the phrase local food system as kind of a shorthand term, but I'm typically not suggesting that we're replacing the current globally dominant food system with something exclusively local. It's more just thinking about for what part of our food system could we kind of shorten the distance from farm to plate, if you will, and what additional impacts might that have on our community health and on our environment and on our local economy? Yeah, that's. I think that's an important idea. It's a hybrid of the two systems, right? So, right. So I think a lot of the folks who listen to the podcast are you know, local government officials, planners. And my experience has been that you know, working in urban areas, that there are a lot of local ordinances that kind of prohibit or get in the way of creating local food systems. Do you have any insights as to, you know, that problem and the degree to which that is changing and any suggestions for local planners, what they could do to incentivize or increase or get out of the way of local food systems? Planning community has been as a whole, they've been pretty progressive, uh, especially in the last, let's say, 10 years about raising awareness of why food systems is an important issue for communities to consider. And the American Planning Association adopted a, a policy guide on community and regional food systems planning. And that's a fantastic resource for both specific tactics for how to use planning in order to support some of these local food issues, but also why. We've actually been doing quite a bit of research in partnership with the International City-County Management Association, ICMA, on this topic. We've done a couple of national surveys trying to ascertain what sorts of policies and programs and plans have communities implemented to support different types of local food activities. We just completed a second survey to see have things changed, and we are asking some new questions about motivations and where they figure out food intersects with the structure of a a local government. And there's quite a bit of variability there. Certainly many communities are more risk averse, I think, when they're considering making a change to zoning that might allow for a use that you might call unconventional in a urban, commercial, or residential district. And you know, that's always going to be a challenge, especially when you have, I don't know if I said lack of awareness, but just people making assumptions about other stakeholder groups. So I think it's important for communities to try and foster conversations about what 
people need and want in their community. And I just, I don't think there is a one size fits all approach for how to incorporate even just, let's say urban agriculture in all cities. I mean, it's really, really place specific. And I mean, as you mentioned before, the shift from an agricultural economy to an industrial economy, think about how that has played out in Detroit. And now you have this kind of burgeoning urban agriculture movement, but some people don't want to see a city like that kind of shift back in that direction, but some people think it's great. So you really need to continue to have some dialogue about what are the needs and, and what are the opportunities. One of the concepts that the Center for Regional Food Systems website talks about is food justice and sovereignty. How would you define food justice and sovereignty for our listeners? I think that just like with the term local food, there are certainly many definitions of justice, but I think I would offer that access to good food, food that's healthy, green, fair, and affordable. I think it's also important to note culturally appropriate really should be a basic human right that is available to all of us, regardless of differences in race and gender and ethnicity in class, you know, all of those things. But the idea of food justice exists because there are all these structural inequities in our food system that impede that excess, and they're you know, often tied to those differences. So I see food justice as a lens that we can apply to our efforts to work toward more equitable systems. Food sovereignty refers to the idea that communities hold the power to determine what a just food system looks like. And I think you most often will hear about that in the context of communities that have you know, been disenfranchised by the food system in the past. Uh, how do you think the urban farming local food system movement, how do you think it's doing? Is it growing as fast as it should and particularly in the most underserved communities and communities of color? I think it's hard to answer that question because as I said before, I think it's so specific to the local assets and needs and priorities. So it kind of goes back to that issue of food sovereignty. Like what, what do people in these communities need? Is it access to land to grow food? Is it a grocery store that stocks culturally appropriate food or is it living wage jobs or is it these things? So in some places it's probably, you, you could say, no, it, it, much more could be done in other places. Maybe it is growing. Some people might say that's the case in Detroit. Detroit just only fairly recently passed an urban agriculture ordinance that essentially rendered a lot of the activities that have been going on for much longer than that legal. So that was sort of a catch-up mechanism. Answering this question on a kind of more macro level, one thing that I think is clear is that we need to do a better job creating pipelines from people in communities that you reference, so underserved communities or communities of color who are interested in these issues and might actually want to make working on them a career. We just don't see a significant representation from communities like those in the people that want to come and potentially work here. And I, I think that's true for a lot of other organizations in academic institutions and elsewhere. Tell us a little bit about your background and what, what motivates you to do this work. So when I tell people now that I work in the field of sustainable agriculture and local food systems, often one of the first questions they 
ask me is, oh, did you grow up on a farm? And absolutely not. I grew up actually here in in the town where Michigan State University is located. It's like I said, we're just outside the capital. And in fact, my mom doesn't even really like to cook. Like, I'm not really sure where this interest came from, but I was raised in a family that's been always been very involved in our local community. And I actually went to Michigan State University for um, my undergraduate degree. And as I was kind of moving towards a focus on urban planning and on community development, I just started to learn a little bit more about people that were in this kind of food systems world. And I thought it was interesting, but kind of a, a hobby or hobby type interest, I guess. And I went to graduate school in Chicago and I don't know, this whole time I was working in restaurants. So I guess I was around food in some capacity, but it was in graduate school for planning where I was realizing how food systems really drew or, or kind of cut across a lot of areas that were interesting to me, including community development and economic development and also environmental issues and sustainability. And so anytime I had the freedom to pick an area to do more research in, it was always food systems, even though that wasn't a focus of my program's curriculum. Um, So I kind of kept my eye back at Michigan State, knowing there was a lot of interesting work happening in this field and was fortunate to have the chance to come back here in 2008 and join our team. I'm the only planner here currently. So I think one of the things I bring to that work, kind of the interdisciplinary perspective and also interest in community engagement. I've been here seven years actually this week and it's been, it's really flown by because it's been an opportunity to work in an area, like I said, that you feel personally passionate about so it doesn't always feel like work. I think you hit on something that I, I think that people don't always appreciate or think about the degree to which food systems really impact every aspect of our lives, right? From mm-hmm. from our health to our economy to our environment. So this year at the New Partners for Smart Growth Conference, there are a series of three pre-conference activities related to food systems that attendees can participate in. Can you explain what these are to our audience? Sure. So this will be the third year that we have partnered with the Local Government Commission and the New Partners for Smart Growth Conference to develop the food-related pre-conference content. This is a bit of a mouthful. So this year that will, like you said, take three forms. The first being, and the main event being a pre-conference workshop, kind of there'll be three main chunks to that agenda. That'll be an opportunity to hear from national and local speakers talking about the innovative partnerships, programs, and policies that they have been engaged with that are advancing more equitable food systems. I mentioned briefly Eastern Market earlier. Um, We'll have a speaker from there. I mentioned that USDA toolkit that's coming out. We expect that will be covered. We're going to be touching on issues of food justice. We really like the conference as a venue for this conversation because it's an opportunity to speak to a really interdisciplinary audience and also an audience that's really poised to do work within local governments and also with local governments to better engage them in this food movement. Then Thursday morning, we're doing something new this year, which I'm very excited about, which will be, we're just calling it the bonus session, but there will be a session Thursday morning that will feature speakers talking about different collaborative networks that are kind of trying to grow 
resilient food systems in different parts of Oregon. So the conference, as you know, is in Portland this year, but these speakers will all be from outside the Portland area. And the session is intended to do two things. Participants will get to learn more about the different priorities and the, and the food work that these various networks are engaged in, but they'll also be able to learn about how the networks were organized and how they are managed and operated, how they engage communities, how they measure success and adapt based on what they're learning. We have at least one, if not more, that are using a framework called Collective Impact, which I think there's been a lot of interest in in our food world, but I mentioned in other sectors as well as an organizing strategy. So that session will be open to all people who are attending the conference, whether they come for the food systems workshop the prior day or not. And then finally, the third item is a tour that will take place Thursday afternoon, which will focus on projects in the Portland area. The theme of that tour is efforts that are increasing food access and supporting entrepreneurship in historically disadvantaged Portland neighborhoods. So how can people learn more about your work at CRFS? So at CRFS, I would encourage them to visit our website, which is foodsystems.msu.edu. We are on Facebook and Twitter using the handle MSUCRFS. And then specific to the New Partners Conference, there's a brief description of the activities I mentioned currently available with more to be added between now and the conference. So I'd encourage people to keep checking that website, newpartners.org, for additional details and an expanded roster of speakers as those are confirmed as well. So the last three questions we ask every guest and they're kind of designed to be kind of quick, short answers. So if you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable food systems, what would it be? So I think that one change I'd like to see is for food systems or food access, perhaps more specifically, to be lifted up and explicitly called out in discussions about livability. And one place I see that happening is actually being addressed at a higher level by HUD, by the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Certainly USDA does a lot of great work supporting local and regional food systems, but we still see it framed as an urban versus rural issue. And I think actually that it's a natural fit with HUD's mission to support viable, sustainable communities. I think food should be a part of the conversation. What one action could our listeners take to help build a more equitable and sustainable food future? I would say to not, I I touched on this earlier, but to not make assumptions about what communities or stakeholder groups want or need, but to directly ask them. And if you are successful in the work that you are doing, how do things look 30 years from now? Well, if we're doing, we're continuing to to survey local governments about their role in this, I would like to not hear responses like, this is not the role of local government, or we have a food bank and that seems sufficient. I would really like to see this institutionalized into the functions of local government. It's just one example of a change that's in my vision for the future. Laura, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Unfortunately, we're out of time today. But we very much look forward to attending the Food System Sessions at the New Partners for Smart Growth Conference and seeing you in Portland. 
And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infin Earth Radio. 